1: This is a crowd podcast. Rosenberg.
2: H-Bomb. Sugar Ray. Pam and Jump,
1: Brando. The King and Night. And the Catcher in the Rye. Eisenhower. how you doing? <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 22 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that races through post-war history and the reasons why the world today is as it is – All done through the medium of a number one smash hit for Billy Joel. I'm Katie Puckrick.
2: I'm Tom Fordyce.
1: Oh, and Tom, as always, our minds are ready to be expanded and somewhat made tumescent and quite (laughs) possibly blown.
2: All these are big topics, aren't they? But we've got a big figure in American politics, in world politics, a man who probably did as much to shape that post-war world as any other individual. It is the 34th president of the United States. Dwight Eisenhower.
1: Dwight Eisenhower. Kind of a a tricky, a tricky name, like lots of weird consonances in there. Uh from the original German iron hewer? So apparently some sort of like caveman. Someone who
2: someone who mines iron. Yeah, mines iron, iron
1: or hews it. Yeah, Eisenhower.
2: Wow. What are your memories or what were the sort of the ripples from the Eisenhower era that entered your childhood?
1: Well, uh, lots of my historical information came to me uh, through the medium of Mad Magazine. So mm. that's that's how I uh, viewed the world through spoofs and satires. And that's where I first encountered the phrase, I like Ike, which was his presidential campaign slogan, Ike, being his uh, nickname, Ike Eisenhower. And, uh, And I always remember thinking, gosh, it's such a tepid campaign slogan. You know, you're not very passionate about Ike. You just sort of like him.
2: Yeah, well, I really knew very little about him before I started a little bit of reading for this episode of the show. And now I find myself fascinated by him, by his character, by his influence, by what he was really like. But luckily, Katie, it's not just you and me on this show. Each week we have a learned guest. And this week we have one of our favourite guests back again. Yes. It's Dr. Rivers Gambrell, Research Fellow at the University of Oxford, who was here with Serendipity to talk previously about Richard Nixon, who was Vice President to Dwight Eisenhower. Welcome back, Rivers.
3: Thanks so much for having me back.
2: So my first question, I always like to get into the look and the sound of these great movers in history. So if Dwight were sitting down with us in his studio at his peak... What does he look like? What does he sound like?
3: Well, we get this impression of Eisenhower as being an old guy. You know, we have these black and white photographs, and he might not look like the most exciting character in the world, but that uh, it couldn't be further from the truth. He's a really charismatic guy. The reporters who would go to press conferences, he held weekly press conferences, would say that he could just talk for for hours on end and they would come away with empty notebooks because they wouldn't know what he'd said. Um, But he was actually a pleasure to listen to, even if he wasn't saying much of anything a lot of the time. Was
1: that a deliberate tactic of his Rivers, that he was just trying to, like, uh, dazzle with
3: smoke and mirrors (laughs) and uh, keep people away from the nitty-gritty of what he was doing behind the scenes? Yeah, I think he was a pretty shrewd guy. So he sort of got this reputation for— Maybe being a hands-off president, but behind the scenes, he really was pulling the strings most of the time.
1: I am interested to hear that he was a charismatic person and also that he was like such a big guy. He was actually very commanding. And I didn't know that he had such a jock
3: background. He was a total sportsman. Oh, big time. Yeah. Um, He actually played baseball under a pseudonym to try and earn some money before he went to West Point. Um, Yeah. Most historians agree that he played under the pseudonym Wilson in Kansas. Um, And after that, he did get get to play football at West Point. He even played against the legendary athlete Jim Thorpe, uh, American Olympian. And uh, shortly after that match with Jim Thorpe, um, he had a devastating knee injury. Um, So he couldn't play football anymore, and that's why he turned to golf later in life. It's a little less strenuous.
2: Ah, and what position did he play?
3: Um, He was a running back, and he actually was named by the New York Times as one of the best running backs on the East Coast uh, during his day.
2: Sliding door, so if he doesn't have that knee injury, does he end up president, I wonder? Does he go into professional sports?
3: Probably not because, uh, I mean, he graduated middle of his class, um, but he ended up an officer because he was so physically limited by this debilitating injury. Um, Nowadays, the same kind of knee injury, you'd probably see a guy out for five or six months. But back then, you know, this is something that affected him the rest of his life. So he wouldn't have gone to officer school. He wouldn't have, uh, yeah, wouldn't be the same trajectory at all.
1: Wow. Being president was a poor second to being a supersonic sports star. (laughs) I
3: read that uh, Eisenhower
1: said later in his life that not making the baseball team at West Point was one of the greatest disappointments of my life, maybe my greatest.
3: Yeah, he was devastated. I mean, like uh, he had played uh, under the pseudonym professionally in in Kansas and um, had uh, been an umpire and that was his sport before football. And then football very quickly took over um, and he was very happy to make the football team and he was very talented. But baseball was probably his first true love when it came to sports. And uh, over the years, he still coached. He coached football teams and baseball teams. And uh, he earned a reputation for being very uh, unbiased and fair judge. Hmm. So he came from a poor family. He was one of six boys. What, What was the whole situation there growing up? Well, oddly enough, I mean, both of his parents were college educated, pretty rare at the time. Um, but even though his dad was a college educated engineer, um, he really struggled to find work. Uh, so he de- definitely grew up in poverty and spent most of his childhood uh, working and praying because his parents were extremely religious folks um, and they later became Jehovah's Witnesses.
1: Oh, yeah. So they were totally hardcore, uh, planning for the end of the world <laughs> kind of situation. And he and Ike uh, didn't end up continuing going to church
3: after he grew up, but still religion was important to him, I gather? Yeah, I mean, I think he had enough religion to last a lifetime just from <laughs> growing up with his parents. Um, but later on, he did see it as a really important tactic to promote religion, um, to sort of, uh, you know, as far as like painting America in this kind of light, you know, freedom of religion compared to the atheist communists. So when he's president, you actually see a uh, some bills passed where you have, uh, in God we trust, is printed all the currency. Yes, And uh, um, in the Pledge of Allegiance, under God is added. So he really is a fan of this kind of thing happening. And it's sort of the era of like televangelism when he's in office. So he sees the importance of appearing religious, even if he wasn't really religious. And he's actually the only president to be baptized in the White House.
2: Yeah. Casey, you sent me, before we recorded this, you sent me uh, a photo of the young Ike with his wife, which is uh, full of charm because not only is he fresh-faced, he's looking very dapper in, I don't know what the, job, milit- they're, they're the job purse. yeah There's the very strange cut of a trouser where you go super baggy above the knee and super tight below the knee.
1: For riding horses. Oh right, so yes. It's practical.
2: Yes. And then his wife is, if you'd like to describe what she's wearing, you could quite happily wear the entire outfit that's she is wearing. I would today. wear.
1: I would wear it today. I'd wear it right now. I'd have to make you guys wait while I nipped out to the loo and changed head to toe into what she's wearing. So this is Mamie. They weren't actually married at the time. It was 1916, and it is uh, people from another era. I mean, they do look like they're just you know Edwardian dandies. So she's wearing a really uh, tight little kind of turban hat, and then she's wearing um, a very narrow-shouldered jacket that floofs out around the thighs. So it's almost like a little skater dress um, with a little ring of fur around the bottom of it. And then she's wearing a skirt in the same dark wool fabric that goes to her ankles and then very delicate little kitten-heeled lace-up boots that look like something a can-can girl would wear in a music (laughs) hall, Um, they both look like absolute fashion statements. He's got his jobbers on. He's got leather boots up to his knees, and he's wearing a a peaked hat, and he's got his military jacket on. So um, they are definitely in a Edwardian murder mystery um, (laughs) or about to be future president and first lady in a few decades. Yeah, how did how did they get together and how did they get their look together, Rivers? Well, I was going to
3: say, whatever she's wearing, it probably didn't come cheap um, because she came from a really well-off family in Colorado. Her dad uh, had a slaughterhouse and was able to retire by the age of 36. And they spent their summers down in Texas where she went to girls' school. So they were introduced by mutual friends and really hit it off. Um, but uh, her parents weren't exactly thrilled with the setup because Eisenhower didn't, you know, have much money. He came from an incredibly poor background. Um, and he uh, played poker and won uh, a fair amount of money. And that's how he managed to buy jewelry and presents and the kinds of things that she was more accustomed to. Mm. Well, you got to get there somehow. It doesn't matter if those gains are ill gotten or not. He actually felt bad about taking uh, money from his, um, from his colleagues. And uh, he eventually quit playing poker because he didn't want to keep taking their money. Of course, this is absolutely the opposite of his. Future Vice President Richard Nixon, who had no problem taking money <laughs> from um, from Relished the guys it. on yeah in the Navy, and uh, I think Nixon won somewhere. Uh, well, by today's standards, I think it'd be like two hundred thousand dollars to help fund his first congressional campaign. But but uh, Eisenhower said no. I'm gonna stop taking money from my friends, um, and he ended up playing bridge for the rain, most of the rest of his life. Um, How did they get together? Well, just this mutual friend introduced them, and uh, things really went from there. I guess she wasn't super interested at first um, as these stories go. Um, But he uh, pursued her and uh, eventually she fell for him and they got married in 1917.
2: Was he a frustrated soldier in some ways, Rivers, because the armistice in World War One is signed, what, a week before he's due to go out there to fight?
3: Yeah, exactly. He was a a little miffed about that because he never got to actually see action. Um, So he wound up uh, going to the Philippines and working with Pershing and MacArthur. And that's kind of where he gets his reputation for a really stand up guy. But he was definitely disappointed he didn't get to go um, see Europe.
2: And that didn't hold him back at all as he progressed through the ranks, this fact that he hasn't actually personally experienced warfare.
3: No, not really. I mean, he was determined never to go back to Kansas. He worked in a creamery with his dad. He didn't really want to go back to that kind of life. So he was determined to make a career in the military. And uh, even though he'd finished middle of his class at West Point, he made sure to go to officer school. And uh, yeah.
1: And what are the qualities that enable him to finagle his way up the totem pole?
3: So he's really level-headed, unlike some of these other Big names. He didn't um, think too highly of himself. You know, like MacArthur kind of saw himself as a deity or a God. And um, Eisenhower was uh, yeah, very level headed. And uh, he really took his time making a decision. He even had a few tactics like he would write in a diary every day um, for big decisions. He would put the decision on a chair and walk around the chair. Um, so, yeah. I think his temperament was probably one of the reasons why he, he skyrocketed the way he did.
1: So he was a team player as well. Definitely. Yeah. And then also very analytical. Sounds like he, he sort of trusted his gut. He was good at sort of listening to his own instincts.
3: Yeah. And he was definitely the type of guy where if everything went horribly wrong, he would take responsibility. And if everything went really well, he would uh, give responsibility to others. So that, that was an endearing quality too.
2: He sounded quite likable, Katie. Yeah. What do you think about him so far?
3: Um, I did not
1: know these aspects of him. And I have to say the fact that he was so good with people and so good psychologically and not in a sinister way. That does make me think, oh, every now and again, uh, America has a leader that's not just in it for himself. It sounds like that he always had integrity, even when he was working his way up through the ranks um, let's talk about what he was doing during uh, World War II. He oversaw the invasion of Normandy,
3: D-Day. He did. yeah. Um, he actually started out managing the campaign in North Africa and then obviously oversaw Operation Overlord, which um, you know saw the invasion of um, France. And uh, the Germans were pretty convinced that the Americans were going to come from Calais um, in further east, which was closer to England. So Eisenhower had a big big decision on his hands. And ultimately, I'm sure you all know this, but the weather was so bad and he had to make a decision whether to go or not. And he ultimately gave the decision to go. What do you know about Kay Summersby? Kay Summersby grew up in Cork in Ireland. And she was a really remarkable woman for her time. She didn't want to sit out the war, um, so she got a driver's license and eventually worked her way up to becoming Eisenhower's personal valet and, by most accounts, lover. And he she was really a shoulder for him to lean on during those war years. And obviously, this created a lot of tension back home with Mammy. Apparently, during his like one visit back to the US during the war, he accidentally called Mammy K. Oh, so <laughs> classic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Come on, like. yeah. For
2: all that diplomacy. <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah.
1: Was there a future? Could he ever even consider a future with K or everybody just understood this was in the moment?
3: Well, I'm going to tell you a juicy story, but you have to take it with a grain of salt because not all historians agree that it happened. But it might have happened. He allegedly wrote a letter to his superior, George Marshall, telling him, I would like to divorce Mammy and marry Kay. And Marshall allegedly said, well, go ahead, but you're not going to have a job here anymore. Um, So obviously Eisenhower decided to stay in Europe, keep his job and stay with Mammy. Um, But later on, during, uh, during the presidential campaign in 1952, the Truman administration like, insinuated that they had a copy of this letter um, and that if Eisenhower and the Republicans didn't rein in Joseph McCarthy, that they were going to make sure that that letter found its way into the, into the public eye. Whoa.
2: Wow. So how long does he carry on seeing Kay?
3: When the war ended, that ended. Um, She wanted to follow him to the Pentagon when he became chief of staff after the war, but because of her nationality, she wasn't allowed. Um, And he really cut ties with her. And it's really tragic for her, but she did stay with the army. She ended up in California and was the victim of a break-in and attempted rape um, and got out of the army shortly after that, um, obviously pretty tragic event, and moved to New York where Eisenhower was later the president of Columbia University. And in her memoir, she said she staged this really sort of sad event where she hap- you know would walk around campus trying to bump into him oh. and bumped into him and he said I'm sorry there's nothing I can do for you and never saw her again. Oh man.
2: It's
1: a devastating honest. story. <laughs> so cold. I guess he just had his eye on the prize. Pretty co- wasn't... He could be cold-blooded definitely. Here's an interesting thing I read about him in 1945. He personally made sure that the Nazi death camps were photographed and filmed. For the Nuremberg trial. So he basically wanted to archive these atrocities, anticipating possible future Holocaust denial and, and definitely cataloging it.
3: Uh, what can you tell us about that? He definitely did. Um, so he toured a subcamp of Buchenwald um, and was just so horrified that the first thing he did when he made it back to headquarters was call London, call Washington, D.C., and ask for reporters. You know, send me as many journalists as you can to get over here and document this, because he definitely, as you said, foresaw uh, the Holocaust denial. And even his own son, who was a military photographer at the time, came over and took pictures as well too. He thought it was really important to have this evidence and that everyone see it.
2: It's pretty extraordinary, case, isn't it, to have that foresight?
3: Yeah, I
1: mean, also it perhaps he had that foresight because he then, as we'll get into in a minute, became a president who was very interested in covert. Activity and manipulating perception. So maybe he saw these death camps as an arena where they could be potentially airbrushed by opposition. So maybe he, he foresaw that.
2: Mm. Katie, I need a couple of minutes to process all that stuff. Shall we have some quick adverts? This is the story of Whitney Houston. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince.
1: It's a new podcast series.
2: About how they died and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. That feeling. That feeling. Just
1: search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app.
2: And subscribe now. <laughs> Rivers, how does he go from this point where he is one of the great heroes of the Second World War? He doesn't become president for, what, another eight years? So what happens in that intervening period? How is he able to transition from military leader to civilian leader?
3: Yeah, it's not an easy transition, really. Um, He takes over uh, Army Chief of Staff. And uh, his job is basically dismantling this army that he's you know been in charge of for so long, and it's just not a fun task. So um, he puts that aside and becomes the president of Columbia University. But that also really bores him. It's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of infighting with the faculty. Um, so there's sort of this perception that he reluctantly you know ran for president, and that he you know these uh, these Republicans were basically begging him to take the job. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, I think he he was shrewd enough to realize that it looked good if he didn't appear to be chomping at the bit for the job. So I think that he definitely did um, want to be president,
1: and he beat the Democratic candidate Adelaide Stevenson in a, a landslide, didn't he?
3: Oh yeah, did and as you mentioned, I like Ike. You know, there's this diabolically catchy ad campaign <laughs> um, with a song attached. And, oh yeah, uh, I saw that on on how YouTube. Does it go? Yeah, I'm singing it. <laughs> it's, I'm sorry. It's like the, it's like the political baby shark. It'll be stuck in all of our heads.
2: So this song, Katie, we'll try and give an approximation of this song that would have been dominant across America at the time and I'll start us off okay I like, Ike. I like Ike. I like Ike. I like Ike. I like
1: Ike. You like Ike. I like Ike. We like Ike. And it goes on and on and on forever. He likes Ike. We get
2: Ike to Washington. We don't want John. Or hurry, let's do that big job right. Let's get in step with the guy that's happy. Get in step with Ike.
1: Well, you know, it's catchy and it sticks in your head. And before you know it, Ike is the president. And Americans are pretty happy about it. What's going on in America at the time?
3: Well, Americans, uh, you have to remember that the Democrats have been in charge for almost two decades since 1933 when FDR was elected. And so a lot of people were ready for a change. Um, Republicans ran on Korea, communism and corruption, probably communism and Korea being the most important two um, of the three. But um, by the time Ike becomes president um, or the time Truman's leaving office, Truman's approval rating is only 23 percent, which is – I'll, I'll tell you how dismal that is. Nixon had a higher approval rating when he resigned after Watergate. Mm. Um, so, the, yeah, the American people are pretty fed up with Truman and with the Korean War. And he uh, he lost a lot of popularity points when he fired General Douglas MacArthur, um, who was still a very popular figure in the U.S. at the time. Um, so, yeah, as you said, Eisenhower won in the landslide subsequently.
1: Eisenhower is the only general to serve as president in the 20th century. And um, I guess my thought about that is that you'd expect him to be a little bit of a warmonger, but in fact, he's not. I mean, that's one of the hallmarks of his presidency, isn't it, that he's uh, deliberately trying not to get into another war?
3: I mean, yeah, I mean, he saw so many things overseas and didn't want American troops on the ground, which is why he relies too much so on the CIA and these covert operations. a lot of the flat goes to the Dulles brothers. Um, Alan Dulles was the head of the CIA. John Foster Dulles, his brother, was the secretary of state. And they organized a lot of these operations. And there used to be this perception that Eisenhower just gave them free reign and didn't really know exactly what they're doing. But that's not the case at all. He was very heavily involved in, in these um, events.
2: And what did they involve, these covert operations, which countries?
3: Well, in 1953, uh, the overthrow of Mohammad Mosaddegh in Iran, because the British weren't happy with him wanting to nationalize their petroleum industry. Um, 1954, they helped organize a coup in Guatemala. And in 1960, they helped with the assassination of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. And as you know, these countries suffered you know, years of devastation after this. Um, the Dulles brothers were former corporate lawyers, and they were hardcore capitalists who just thought that, um, you know, if we didn't take these guys out, that Bolshevism and communism would take over and the world would just go insane because American corporations couldn't operate anymore. It's interesting that, of course, it always comes down to
1: money. Yeah. Uh, the pros and cons of covert action. I mean, of course, the pros are, uh, and I guess Eisenhower would have argued this, less of a death toll. Uh, you know, you're not doing conventional warfare and sending young people off to their deaths in the battlefield. But the cons, oh my gosh, I mean, you know, meddling in nation states, uh, interfering. And of course, there's long-term consequences, like with Iran, when the the Shah was reinstated and there was civil unrest after that, which then decades later led to the hostage crisis during the Jimmy Carter presidency and, uh, you know, ongoing bad blood between them and
3: us. I guess for him, the pros outweighed the cons because he didn't have the biggest pro probably being that he didn't have to take public responsibility for anything at the time. Yeah. And it's cheaper, you know, because he's
1: got the nuclear deterrent and then like sneaking around. Was he being on the down low with the covert actions around the world because he felt morally it was wrong or just because he wanted to be sneaky?
3: I guess a bit of both, but he very much wasn't a diehard anti-communist. And he really thought that this was the best way to move forward and secure the United States place in the world. Um, and that's why he really was a an unconventional Republican. Um, if he hadn't run, there was this other guy, Robert Taft, who would have run. And he was the son of the President Taft, and he wanted um, an isolationist policy. And one of the reasons Eisenhower really decided to run was because he was an internationalist and he wanted the United States to have a strong geopolitical role and not be an isolationist country. So that's why that's where his head's at, I think, at this time.
2: There's a, there's a phrase that gets associated with him, Rivers, which is one of those phrases which seems contradictory. He's described as a progressive conservative. Yeah. What does that mean?
3: <laughs> well... I guess a lot of old guard Republicans at the time wanted to dismantle the New Deal programs. Um, and when he takes office, he doesn't um, get rid of the New Deal programs, and he actually expands Social Security. He uh, he's involved in the highway, interstate highway construction projects. Um, he said there was enough concrete used in those projects to build six sidewalks to the moon. <laughs> um, he was really proud of this. Um, so he was definitely bipartisan. He's possibly the most bipartisan president we've had in modern times, actually.
2: So he could have been a Democrat in another world, could he? He could have run for the Democrats. Well,
3: this is interesting because Harry Truman actually wanted him to run as president as a Democrat, and lots of Democrats wanted him to run. And, uh, of course, it came out later that he was a Republican. Mm. So you were saying earlier that...
1: Uh Eisenhower was really one of the first presidents who had this internationalist vibe, and uh, he, you know, cleverly, I suppose, in terms of power, was interested in uh, America being a force uh, for good or for evil all around the world. But um, what was what was driving that? Was it all about uh, America versus the USSR? Was that the idea? It was going to be them or us?
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean. The Eisenhower Doctrine, as it's defined, actually wasn't a thing until 1957, Um, and that was in a speech he gave to Congress, in which he encouraged Middle Eastern countries to uh, to request U.S. assistance if there was, uh, you know, if the commies were trying to get involved in the Middle East. Um, And and most most of them read this the right way and and, uh, saw that it was uh, the United States wanted to be a threat to Arab nationalism. Um, So that was also another factor at play. Um, And this obviously happens after the Suez Crisis. which was a high point in Eisenhower's presidency and really solidified the United States' places like the number one power in the world.
2: What was the secret? Because he does he serves two terms as president, and the majorities both time are pretty substantial. What is his secret with the American public? Why do they like him so much?
3: I guess because he just comes off as such a genial guy and uh, the kind of person. I mean, they still just really thought of him as the war hero, um, and he maintains this you know perception, um, and he really doesn't have. Too many scandals. Uh, It's a very calm period in the White House, you know, uh, from outside looking in. Um, And it's not really until the U2 crisis that he uh, has any significant setbacks in his presidency, um, at least from the public's perception. And because Billy Joel seems to be obsessed with anything that
1: Eisenhower (laughs) sticks his little pinky finger into, we also will have a U2 episode coming up. But what briefly was that whole brouhaha?
3: Well, Eisenhower actually was really reluctant to have these recon— U-2 is a plane. They were flying recon missions over the Soviet Union. He was really reluctant, but he had a lot of guys in his ear telling him that this was the right thing to do. And uh, prior to this summit in Paris with Khrushchev, um, there were uh, flights organized so they could get an idea of how many nuclear weapons the the communists had. And, of course, the last flight to take off is the one that— crashes, and Eisenhower haven't been told there's no way that it can be tied back to you, um, and there's no way the pilot would survive. But he did survive, and it Whoops. turned into a fiasco. Yeah, mm. It sounds like something out of a movie. The pilot even had this fake silver dollar with a, sh- a pin filled with the uh, shellfish toxin. He could have killed himself, and he really? didn't kill himself. Yeah. It sounds made up, doesn't it? Yeah. But that's what happened. And uh, he actually got some flack for not killing himself <laughs> later. Wow.
1: He was if, recovered. Over. If only you'd killed yourself like you'd been <laughs> trained to. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: You big maroon.
2: When we think about how calm he was, which sounds like a wonderful attribute to have both as a general as and as a president, there's a quote from his son who, who says a very strange thing about his father. He says he's 75% cold-blooded.
3: Yeah. I mean, and we can keep talking about like covert operations to prove his cold-bloodedness. I mean, he's the first... President to order the assassination of a foreign head of state because he ordered Castro's assassination. Obviously, that didn't work out. More than once he did. Yeah. yeah. Um, but here's another thing that a lot of people don't, you know, tend to forget another war, which is his war on the White House squirrels. Um, hey. Which I think is the most cold-blooded thing of all, because he had this putting green. He's a big golfer, right? So he had a putting green installed in the White House, and the squirrels who Harry Truman had like been feeding by hand. Oh, only you know, squirrels. Fault. Yeah. yeah, But they come on his putting green and ruin it. They're burying his acorns, and presumably, I <laughs> told Secret Service fans, shoot them. <laughs> and into the, the Secret Service, you know, guy's credit, he said, "I don't think we have the authority, Mr. President, to shoot them."
2: So hang on. So you, you can you can. Order the assassination of a foreign leader, but do not touch the squirrels.
1: (laughs) Yeah, priorities, Tom, priorities. Also, the optics are not so
3: great at slaughtering cute little furry creatures. Well, yeah, and the Democrats started a Save the Squirrel Fund in Congress. And eventually (laughs) the squirrels are caught and rounded up and released into a park in Maryland. And the Save the Squirrel Funds go to some wildlife fund. Um, But yeah, it wasn't a good look.
2: (laughs) He's obsessed with golf, isn't he?
3: He's definitely obsessed with golf. So,
2: Katie, there is, um, in my old life as a sports writer, one of the uh, happy trips I got to do was go to the Augusta National Golf Course, the home of the Masters, um, which is a very strange place. It's in Georgia, right? Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. a very strange place for many reasons. It's almost like a Disneyland of golf. It's a magical kingdom and then you walk out of the gates and Strip Mall America begins as soon as you leave the gates and there's a Hooters and things <laughs> like that. But within the grounds of the Augusta National, golf is sacrosanct and anyone who plays at the course is sacrosanct as well. And Rivers, there is a particular tree on the 17th fairway that the president gets associated with.
3: Yeah, he always hit this tree. And he was at a meeting with the heads of the Augusta um Golf association or whatever it was called and uh they said is there anything we can do for you mr president he had just had a heart attack and uh, they were gonna you know allow him some free reign in the golf course and he said oh cut down that tree and (laughs) rather than say no they adjourned the meeting and (laughs) refused to cut down this tree so it became known as like the eisenhower pine and uh, Eisenhower didn't really get his revenge until 2014 when an ice storm destroyed the tree on the golf course and it finally came down.
2: And when that tree went, Katie, I still remember the statement from the chairman of the Augusta National. The loss of this tree was talked about like it was the loss of a great golfer, a champion golfer who had charmed generations, won multiple tour- tournaments. The, the, the <laughs> grieving over this tree was extraordinary.
1: But the tree must have been a thorn in the side of many golfers, not just Eisenhower. So are, are they just sort of bidding farewell to a
3: to a, a colleague who, you know, was a little annoying, but you could depend on him? Maybe, yeah. yeah. I think the golfers who knew their history knew not to tee off from where Eisenhower tended to tee off from um, so they could avoid this obstacle.
1: <laughs> I read somewhere, and I wonder if you can shed some light on this, Rivers, that the um, Ike learned about hunting and fishing and cooking and card playing from an illiterate hobo named Bob
3: Davis who camped (laughs) on the river when he was a kid. I heard this too, and I never, I did not find anything to contradict that. But that's the extent of my knowledge about it. And obviously, this guy must have been one hell of a card player because Eisenhower won a ton of money playing poker. And- yeah, he was a total card shark. Yeah,
1: it's so interesting.
3: I mean, uh, and apparently Ike was a real man's
1: man. Like, he, oh, yeah. he you know, he. There's photographs of him barbecuing. You know how men like to cook with fire. So you know, <laughs> as long as it's outdoors and there's fire involved and a grill and a hunk of cow, it's, it's man's work. So he's there, and there's other guys like chomping
3: on cigars, wearing the short sh- shirts, and drinking their beers behind him. Oh yeah, this is a big deal. I mean, he uh, one reporter described him as a walking recipe book. He actually enjoyed cooking, which is a good thing because Mammy, who grew up in a really privileged house, never cooked. She said Cook wouldn't allow us in the kitchen. Hmm. So Eisenhower, a <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Eisenhower did a lot of the cooking in the White House. One of the first presidents to do that, and. Uh, yeah, I guess he did learn it from this guy, but it's probably a good thing he did. And you can find some of his recipes online. And like you said, they're not very vegetarian friendly. But Yeah. And what what were his specialties? Squirrel burger. <laughs> <laughs> I think vegetable soup. There's an alcoholic eggnog recipe. Um, yeah, you can find I think he, they even sell a cookbook at the Eisenhower Library. Oh, that's funny. And one of my favorite fun facts about him is that he sewed...
1: He so he apparently he let out Mamie's dresses when she was pregnant. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's uh, he was quite
3: handy with his uh, digits there. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's because he grew up in this family of six boys and really have a choice but to learn some of these skills. Yeah. And um, going back to what you said about being a man's man, I guess growing up with six you know brothers um he had this gang of guys that he played golf with that he drank with at the white house um and eventually uh this came to the attention of some women's groups and they demanded equal time with with eisenhower so he reluctantly starts these prayer breakfasts uh, with the women but they're not as much fun as
2: <laughs> the nights with, with a the long boys. face yeah. big grump on.
3: <laughs> exactly yeah praying
1: <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> he seems sometimes the attributes that 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 make a a figure in public end up bringing them down and it seems a little bit like that with Eisenhower so all those attributes that we've talked about that attract America the the conservatism, the reliability by the time he's coming to the end of his presidency um, and we see JFK on the horizon there seems to be this contrast between the old man as he is then beset by health problems and this handsome debonair young man who's going to take his place
3: Oh, definitely. And I mean, uh, some historians have said like JFK was really running against Eisenhower in that election rather than Richard Nixon. And uh, JFK pointed out the fact that Eisenhower was um, the last American president to be born in the 19th century. You know, this is the old, this is the new versus, yeah. Yeah.
2: And he has these health problems, Rivers, as well. I read that um, in his younger days, so when he's at West Point, he was smoking four packets of fags a day, which makes me wonder about how relaxed the regime at West Point actually was. Because if you've got the time to work your your way through 80 fags in a single day, there's a lot of other stuff you're not doing. But it has a knock-on effect when he is in his later life. He has a heart attack in office...
3: Yeah. At West Point, they were illegal, by the way. And he did get a couple slaps on the wrist for that, apparently. And he started smoking because he was so devastated by this knee injury and he was really depressed. That's when he picked up the habit. And by the Second World War, as he said, he was smoking four or five packs a day, which is remarkable. And his doctor said, yeah, if you don't quit, you're going to kill yourself. And he said, all right, what's next? And he quit. Cold turkey, just like that. And it's kind of a mark of his self-discipline. And apparently the strategy he used was to actually stuff his pockets with cigarettes, and then hand them out to other people to get this sense of superiority and accomplishment. Um, wow, Weird tactic. But yeah, as you said, he still suffered a heart attack in 55. And this put him out of action for quite a few months. And this is before the 25th Amendment, that allowed for some sort of transfer of power if the president's incapacitated. So uh, it was a really trying time. I'm interested in this little detail that uh, Ike and Mamie's grandson, David
1: Eisenhower, so many Davids in that family, married Richard Nixon's daughter, Julie, in
3: 1968. That's an interesting
1: kind of... the
2: top table conversations at the wedding. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yes. Yeah, David is, uh, you know, he's... He's the reason that Camp David is called Camp David. Um, Eisenhower named it after him, his grandson, and his father. Um, but, he, did, yeah, there's a funny picture of the two as kids um, looking at each other, David uh, and Julie. Julie. Yeah, And if you look closer, it's because she has a big black eye, not because he's in love with her at the time. Um, but they did pretty much grow up together and got married. They didn't get married in the White House. Another one of Nixon's daughters did. Um, but, yeah, now he's a military professor at a. You pin. Ah, oh.
2: wow. that's quite a happy story for me. That I quite like the romance of that. Yeah. He dies when he is 78. So this is March 1969. So America is now under the Nixon presidency. When he dies, how does the country react? Is he seen as a great elder statesman at that point?
3: Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, people were devastated. Um, I do have a, a fun thing to add, though. Uh, he did manage to get a hole-in-one just one year before his death. Ah, finally, after all those Augusta, years of golf playing. Uh, in California. Yeah. It would have been cool if he finally yeah. made it over that pine. <laughs> 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 but yeah, it was it was definitely a devastating time for the country. Yeah.
1: It must have been a, a real perception that it was the end of an era, because, of course, by that time we were full-on into the Vietnam War and uh, civil unrest and um, <laughs> Those crazy women's libbers, <laughs> yeah, starting to make a little bit of trouble, burning their bras. So yeah, I guess in a weird way, even though he was coming from a time of much war, World War One, World War Two, the Korean War, uh, he was seen as a passing of uh, civility, perhaps. Yeah,
3: definitely. And that's a legacy we still have. And I'm, I'll use a bad pun, and I don't know if anyone's ever used it, but he was an icon, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. And he's very iconic. And it's uh, people, Americans still think of him with a, like, a lot of reverence.
1: And what would you say his legacy is of his presidency
3: and his life? Can I say icon again? Yes, yes coming I would. That's yes. a good line. <laughs> you know, bipartisan and doing what he thinks is best, regardless of uh, partisan politics. That's something we, um, we lack today. So I think that's probably his greatest legacy. And it's unfortunate we don't have more Eisenhower's.
2: Fantastic. Rivers, thank you so much again. You have filled my head, Katie's head, with more presidential nuggets and gems.
1: Yes, and you've made this two-dimensional figure into a real, live, flesh-and-blood man. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. Well, Dr. Rivers Gambrell certainly did us right with all the information on Ike Eisenhower. Um, seems like a pretty good guy. Didn't get into any more wars uh, other than just meddling with any number of nation states and bumping off <laughs> a few leaders or at least trying to. But I'd say aside from uh, establishing a, a strong and meddlesome CIA, his big accomplishment is uh, in stating golf. As the presidential (laughs) game of choice. That seems to be his lasting accomplishment.
2: An obsession for so many American presidents. I found myself, Katie, as we found out a bit more about Eisenhower and the things he did well, the things he tried to do well, the mistakes he made. I found myself liking Ike. I can see where that charming little ditty came from. He's (laughs) He's a man who has his flaws, but he also seems to be a man... With a moral compass. And it might not be a moral compass that we all share in every point. But he does seem as if he had that compass and as if he were trying to do his best. Isn't that sounds fair.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. Like he's, you know, the idea that he's looking at the whole lay of the land and working as a team player rather than just imposing his will in a narcissistic fashion, which can describe so many of our leaders. <laughs> so where are we going next week, Tom?
2: Katie, we are going to a possibly dark but also fascinating area. We're going to talk about the vaccine, the vaccine being the polio vaccine,
1: why it was needed, what
2: polio did, how the vaccine changed the world. I think it'll be a good one.
1: And very timely because we're all quite interested in uh, coronavirus vaccines right now. Absolutely. Topical, topical. And uh, listeners, if you want another interesting podcast to indulge in, why don't you try Cautionary Tales? Tim Harford returns with a new series drawing on history and social science to vividly retell the stories of great crimes, accidents and disasters of the past, pointing out valuable lessons for us all from the dithering death and destruction.
2: You yeah, get this, Katie. You will ride with a light brigade as they charge headlong to certain death. You'll fly in a doomed airliner hijacked by idiots. And, Katie, you'll shudder at the deeds of a kindly doctor who was in fact killing his patients. Oh,
1: you're really putting me through the mill here. You can subscribe to Cautionary Tales in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's from Pushkin Industries. <laughs>
2: Crowd Network, a place where you belong.
0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor, a Civil War Army doctor, and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events